Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and um, we'll begin with verse 17 to 21, but I want to really read uh, from 12, because you've got to kind of put the, the thought together with it, and if anybody needs a Bible, lift your hand, and we can get you one in your hand so you can follow along. Anybody need a Bible? Back there, home one Bible, two, three, two, there's a little auction going on here, all right, so. All right, so get your Bible in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, you can take it home. And if you have a Bible at home, leave it here so we can give it to somebody else. So, but we'll start with verse 12. But the, 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 the verses that we'll be studying this morning will be 17 through 21. So, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. So notice the word we talked about last week, pressing on. That's a key component to the, the lesson. I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Now notice he says, one thing I do. And we're going to, that one thing he's going to do, of course, is going to be one to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching on, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, notice the word again, press on, toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus and God. Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, and if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. Now verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship, and your King James will say our conversation, um, is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion, exertion, exertion of power that has been subjected, and He has subjected all things to Himself. Okay. So let's pray again. Father, once again, I'm, I'm asking you to just bring the text out. We, are, we do know that we are laid hold and we need to press on. And Father, I just pray that you would just cause us to press on to understand the message this morning. And we're grateful for meeting here. We thank you for all that you're doing. And we give you great praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 17, brethren, join me in following my example. Let's stop right there. So he uses the word brethren. He does this a number of times. You think he might be wrapping up, but he's, he's still going to go on. Um, he says, join in following my example. Now, this is the, you know, we should be living our life in pursuit of Christ's likeness. So a lot of us say, hey, what's your goal? Well, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good father. You know, I want to, I want to be a good mom. I want to, you know, be a good worker or whatever. And we have these goals that we set. But everything is underneath the umbrella of being Christ-like. So if you're trying to be like Christ, you will be good in all these areas. And this is the whole idea of what he's saying. Paul is saying is that, that we need to be, this is a part of our sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, and we need examples that show us what that looks like. You know, a lot of times we can read in the Bible, uh, but it's nice to see it fleshed out with other people, how they walk with the Lord. 
Um, so we are into much more comfort than we are into accomplishment in America. Um, we live in a society that's fast moving and is moving toward nothing. That doesn't have any goals. It's just other than personal comfort. So we're fast moving. Nothing's happening. People are just like, what is your goals in life? And, um, a lack of responsibility is huge. A lack of accountability is, is huge. And uh, really, I can kind of just pinpoint it. We got kids that are living at home that are in their 20s and 30s and still living at home because they don't have any goals. And there's no accountability. So, and, and you know, for the life of me, I'm, I've never been able to figure this out. Man, when I was 16, I had my license, and I was on the road. And there's kids now that, I mean, they don't, you know, well, I don't have my license. I'm 21. I, are you one of them? No. Well, I don't know if I want them. I'm going, are you kidding me? I, you know, where I came from, you couldn't wait to get your license. And I had goals in mind. I wanted to, and I think I wanted to grow up faster than I should have. And, but anyway, so the world is different now. And we have a lot of, of different uh, um, ideas and um, but I believe what he's saying here is follow me and imitate me as I imitate Christ, he says. Now, it's interesting that the, these words join, following, and example are the same Greek word to the T. And the only reason I brought that up, it's, uh, the word is sue metas, and is where we get the word imitate. And, uh, and it's the, all three of these words in just a different English form are, are what is just imitate, imitate, imitate. So what he's saying three times in three different English words is imitate me, imitate my example. Um, and that's pretty, I think that's pretty, um, pretty telling when he says, I want you to imitate, imitate me, imitate me as I follow Christ. Um, for, um, second Thessalonians, we could turn there if you would like, but I'm just going to read to you. And uh, Paul writing here, it's Second Thessalonians chapter 3, 7 through 9. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act undisciplined, in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we may not be a burden to you. And he's talking about the example here is that, you know, he was not undisciplined. He, he set the uh, model of being a disciplined man. And believers have to, we have to be disciplined in what we do when we set goals and be, to be like Jesus. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, Paul says, You have countless tutors, but not many fathers. Imitate me. So, guys, we have a lot of people around us, even in this body, that you can look at, and uh, and they're kind of like tutors to you. You watch their life, and you watch them walk it out. But Paul said you don't have many fathers. That means somebody that's really, really instrumental in your life. Someone that you can say, kind of, it's kind of like a spiritual father. We're not trying to take the place of being someone else's father. But um, at times, we can be a spiritual father to people. And a lot of people grew up in this time and age with a father that was not either there or wasn't a very good example. And so, um, so I, I look at this, and, and, and I have men in my life that have been like spiritual fathers. And many of you heard me speak about some of the men that had come through my life. And one was Pastor George Markey. And uh, Pastor George really set the bar for me in service and how he served the Lord. 
and and really um, I watched him and I, I imitated him. It was like uh, my dad wasn't a Christian. I got to lead my dad to Christ, but he never. My family never brought me up in the ways of, of you know Christianity. So I had someone that that lived it in front of me, and I had some other um, mentors: Joe Bell, Dave Cassie. Uh, Mike Abney and a good friend of ours here, Glenn. It's good to see you, Glenn. And we knew Mike really well. And in a lot of ways, Mike was a, a mentor for a lot of us because of his uh, faith that he had. He had the most simple faith that 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 you could just lean on. And, and it was, I just I love Mike Abney. So God gives us men like that in our lives, and we need to see we need to see what that looks like to have people that will be in our life that would lead. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this, Be imitators of me as I am imitate Christ. And so you would think that's pretty egotistical. You know, hey, follow me, you know. Um, but he qualifies that as I follow Christ. Now, I'm going to ask a question, ladies and gentlemen, guys and gals alike. Um, are you an example? Can you say with your life to your family, your children, your husband, or people around you, follow me. I want to be an example for you. A lot of people say, well, I can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. And I'm going to tell you that, yes, Jesus can do that, and we are to, to follow Christ. But there are men that, that or women that come into our life at times that just just really influence us, and we we watch them, we love them, you don't idolize them. But it's a case in point that we need leadership in our country. We need people to take the bull by the horns. Our country, it, you know, is is of course you know where it's going, and uh, it's heading toward a lot of stuff that's not favorable to Christianity. But one thing for sure is that there, are, there needs to be men and women that will step up into the gap and, and lead and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me. And I think that's a pretty heavy question. But I think it can be, um, it can be a part of our, um, of our life, is that we're being examples to others. The goal of the Christian life is to become Christ-like. And that's what we need to pursue. It's a part of our sanctification more and I like what he says in Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be uh, to become conformed to the image of his son. So this is interesting. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. So the whole idea, Paul saying, is that we are to be like Jesus, be in his image, and he foreknew us. He predestined us, and this is to me a case in point of predestination. The work of predestination is done in the sanctifying work of salvation. After this, this verse couches it really well. After we're saved, that God has said in his word, we are predestined to be more like Jesus. And that, then that means he's doing the work. So when I gave my life to Jesus, he predestined me to become more like him and to walk in his image. So predestination in this particular verse indicates that there's salvation first, and then we then we start walking after Jesus, and he does that work. It's, it's the work of sanctification, I call it, or everybody calls it. So, every one of you who believe in Jesus are predestined to become like him. Isn't that good to know? I mean, that he, he desires that, and he works on that, and this is the work of predestination happens a lot, this, this particular verse, after we're saved. Um, we need to see the life of Jesus lived out in other people and others. 
And what an example we had in Paul. And what an example maybe some of you guys have had in other people. As a young believer, I'm going to tell you, my heart yearned to watch someone to do what I desired, to be like Jesus. I look for people that were trying to live for Jesus and to be like him. So my heart yearned for that. And I think that's the yearning of every believer. Hey, who's doing it? Who's living it out? Can it happen? Can it happen on this planet? Yes, it can. And God brings men and women into our life like that. And again, I'm telling you, God has been faithful in my life and uh, allowed me to be able to walk in... um, in, under the tutelage, if you will, of some great men, I believe. We have guys like Moody and Spurgeon and Whitfield and these guys that went before us who are great examples and how they taught the word and how they lived their faith. Um, now, it's interesting here, too. He says, keep joining and follow and observe. Um, it's interesting, observe, that word. So, I want you to imitate me. And the people, and interesting, he also says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So he's saying, there's not only me and Paul and Timothy, or Paul and I and Silas are walking out the faith, but there's other guys doing it too, and other gals doing it too. So watch their example. It's not just uh, predicated on Paul and his, his guys. And he says, um, observe those who walk according to the pattern. So observe what? Those who walk. Walk it out. The word walk is, is a Greek word, peripateo. I call it peripatetos. So if you want to know Greek, that's how I, that's how I do it. But it's peripateo, and it, and it means to make use of every opportunity. So when you're walking it out as a Christian, you see opportunities, and, and the opportunities are just this, to live like Jesus and to share your faith with somebody else. We had the arrow thing last week and Saturday night. Um, was it Friday night? Saturday night. And uh, we, Joe um, Whitchurch and I played some music out front and cars were going by. And it just so happened that a couple of young guys from, were going to the football game. And Mike and Mike, our Mike team, uh, got to share Christ with them. It was an opportunity for them. And that's what it means to walk it out. You are taking um, every opportunity to live like Jesus and to tell somebody about Jesus. You know, if you go to the grocery store, and you see somebody you hadn't seen for a long time. You know what? That's, that's walking as Jesus walked. You share Christ with them. I see people sometimes, and how you doing? So I'm in high school, you know, and I get to share my testimony. Or I, I don't give a big testimonial share. I just say I'm a Christian now. And, and uh, I get, I, every opportunity I have to share Jesus Christ with somebody, I, I, that's what it means to walk out your faith. Don't miss those opportunities. When somebody comes into your life, God has done it for a reason. And you, you make sure that you just make use of every opportunity. I mean, that's what I see Paul encouraging us. You know, Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to walk by faith. So there's another dimension to our walk. And it's to walk by faith. And that is the most precious commodity God has given us on this planet is our faith. Because that'll be the stability, that'll make us stable, and that'll bring us through every trial if we just have, God's just asking us to have faith. And we're to walk by that faith and not by sight. And so that's one of the ways, and when you walk by faith, guys, it's not like your feelings. You may have come here this morning and maybe things aren't going like super great. And you're coming here just because you know it's the right thing to do. And that's great. But you know what? It's a faith walk. 
And as I shared with you last week, sometimes I don't always feel like sharing or a God wants to use me. But I got to get out of myself and know that, that, that it's faith God's called me to do what, he's, what he wants me to do. And I don't always feel it. Uh, you know, I remember leading worship. And I was a worship leader for about 15 years before I was a pastor. And there were times I got up and I'm thinking, man, Lord, I don't feel it. <laughs> and I'm just getting up there and I made it just feel really crummy. And I started singing and walking by faith. And God just took all, peeled all the flesh off and I was worshiping God. And you may come to church not feeling it. And you know what happens? Probably that's the best sermon for you to listen to when you're not feeling it. Amen? It's like something gets said and you go, man, I'm glad I made it. I felt so crummy coming. But we walk by faith. Galatians chapter, and Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 16 and 20, he says that you're to walk by the Spirit. So another way that the example that we give and that we see is are people walking in the Spirit. And again, it's not this little, this like, ooh, the guy's walking in the Spirit. I just see all kinds of stuff around. It's like, there's no, it's like when you walk in the Spirit, you walk normal as Christ would walk. Walking in the Spirit is being sensitive to other people and you're actually knowing that there's opportunities. I mean, I, I have an agenda everywhere I go. Tom Camp, you got an agenda. You bet I do. I want to see as many people come to Jesus as I can. And so, and you can only do that by walking in the Spirit. And so I do believe that walking in the Spirit gives us the edge in when we go out and walk in this world and share with people. Walking in the Spirit is simply when you're confessing your sins that you're immediately, you, if you sin, you immediately go to the Lord and say, Lord, would you just forgive me? He forgives us, and then he fills us again. And that, there's a lot to walking in the Spirit, but we need to walk in the Spirit. Then another part of our walk is in, uh, John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, to walk in the light. Now that's important. And now many of you have maybe have not read Calvary Road, and if you had, it's a really good book, but there's a big key emphasis on one thing, to walk in the light with your brothers and sisters, to be accountable, and say, are you, hey, listen, bro, are you walking in the light? And that can only happen, and you can only observe people if you're somewhere to be observed or somewhere that you can observe someone, right? If you've got to be somewhere, you've got to be either at church, you've got to do something, and you can't observe people walking if you're not in a place where you can observe. It just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You're not going to observe in front of the TV and watch Netflix. But he says, um, walk in the light. So it is it's so important and it's imperative that we have somebody in our life that can say, hey, are you walking in the light? It, automatically, if you're married, that's your spouse. But guys, you need to have a man that you can be accountable to and say, I'm, and if he asks you, you know, how are you doing? Are you walking in the light? You can disclose to him anything. And you need that. We need that. It's not going to come just Sunday morning or even go to an occasional Bible study. It comes when you dig in with people. And so walking in the light is important. And again, um, it, it should be done with our spouses, Absolutely. But guys and gals, we need someone to walk in the light with. That's a part of this faith walk. That's a pattern that we set for other people. If we're not accountable, you know what? We're going to produce a bunch of people that don't care. They're not accountable either. Then John also says in 1 John 2, 6, he says, Walk as Jesus walked. And it's not the gate, you know. It's not like, you know, you got this gate. We had I had an old friend back in the day. His name is Steppenwolf. And... and 
after a bottle or two of codeine, he was addicted. <laughs> he would walk downtown and have this gait. He had this step, you know, and, and we had their Steppenwolf. And he, and he was very identified by his walk. And guys, it's not the way we walk, our gait. It's not how we, it's more when they see you, what are they seeing in your life? Your walk is your lifestyle. And he says, walk as Jesus walked. So Paul again says, hey, listen, imitate me. And imitate those people that are around us that are imitating me. You get that? So, so there's a succession of discipleship being spoken of here. I love it when John said it. Um, in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, when John depicted you know, um, Christ to his readers, he said this, What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld... And what our hands handled. Now, this is what he said. This is really emphatic in the Greek. In other words, he's going, uh, it's not going like this. Hey, you know, I, I saw Jesus. I heard him speak. It was cool. You know, I beheld him and I touched him with my hands. No, it was my, man, what I heard. I mean, this is what he's saying. And what I've seen and what I beheld, man, what I've touched, I've touched him. I've had close contact with him. And that is what, guys, our first and foremost thing is to be close with Jesus. That way we can tell people, I just spoke with him today. When somebody says, hey, you know, how do you know Jesus? Matter of fact, I just spoke with him this morning. Matter of fact, I've been talking with him all day. You know, and I love that song. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, um, it was oh, I can't even remember. All I know is that, that one part was, I just spoke to him this morning. It was like really powerful. I'm going, and it hit me. We speak with him every day. And this is why we're, when we're accountable and walk in a pattern, we're, we're accountable to other people, too. And there needs to be some kind of connection there. Now, he said, observe, um, and I like that, those who walk according to the pattern. The, the word pattern is interesting, but it means just like a stamp or a model. And it, so here's the pattern Paul had. He was disciplined, 2 Thessalonians, we already went through that, 3, 7 through 9. He was not an undisciplined man, and he worked, and that's the, he, he, he really has shown us a work ethic. So if you're, you know, it's important that we walk out our faith as hard workers, whether you're working in a factory, you've got a business, your occupation. Paul said, I worked hard. He worked building, making tents. And when he wasn't doing that, he was on ships getting sunk and getting beat. I mean, that guy worked hard. And he had a great work ethic. And I really think that that goes a long way with people. When they see our pattern of walk, uh, that we work hard. And we... we um, you know what I mean? We work after something that we know for sure has eternal benefits. And that's so important. So that was the example, but also the example Paul laid out, and the pattern he laid out was this. And Jesus did it first, but we know Paul did. But First Peter 2, 21, Peter said it like this. You, Harvest Chapelites, or whatever, <laughs> for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So what was the example that Jesus set? It was to suffer. And Paul suffered a lot. And we know that he was shipwrecked. You know, he was beaten. He was working all the time. And what is the pattern that Paul had? That he didn't quit. That he continued to go on no matter what happened, no matter what city he went to. They beat him. They stoned him in Lystra. Thought the old boy was dead. He gets up, chum, 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 walks back into the city. It's like, how do you stop him? Somebody stop him because you can't. 
He's got it. And so the pattern is that through persecution and hardships, you will suffer. You know, guys, we're going to suffer. And I don't mean like you have to look at this like, oh, man, here's a, here's a suffering message this morning. Well, but there's something about suffering that draws us closer to Jesus and to our fellow. And we talked about that last week. But when I suffer with someone, and, uh, and uh, we're all suffering with Mike Hale. He lost his mom. And we suffer. And I'm closer for that, although, you know, it's just a body, like uh, James told me this morning, you guys know James Head and how we met, and I I shared it last week where his son committed suicide in the garage, and he was the first one to walk in and found him. And that was 15 years ago to this day, and James came up and said, you know, 15 years ago, Tom, I met you. And he said, I was so thankful, and God had put James and I together through suffering. We had this camaraderie. And uh, so when we suffer with Jesus, it's just that much even more sweet. Amen? It is so sweet to, to suffer with Jesus. Um, I kind of look at this word observe, and I want to kind of bring this out by go back. Um, the word is um, um, scopio, but it means to contemplate or to fix your eyes upon. So who are you observing? You've got to be somewhere to fix your eyes on somebody. And they have to be somewhere to fix their eyes on somebody. So this whole thing doesn't work unless we're accountable and we're in the body of Christ being mobile. But he, but we, he said, this is the pattern. Um, he wasn't undisciplined. And you know what? When we are seeking to become more Christ-like, you know, Paul didn't say you need to be, I'm praying for you to be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be a good family man, a good worker. He, he never said that. He always said that we are come, and when you are being more Christ-like, you will have time for your family. You will have time for your wife. You will have time for the things that I give you. You will be an example. And that is so important. we got plenty of time, guys, when we're following Jesus to be a good role model in our home. So... He brings us back to this pattern that you have in us. And then, then he says this, But many walk, whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this will be probably one of Paul's most personal letters outside Romans when you get in Romans chapter 7. But the word I, just in uh, probably verse 7 to 21, is mentioned, um, or 17 to 21, is mentioned like 11 times. So Paul's laying it out here, basically, and he's saying this, guys, that there are a lot of people that are walking, not just, you know, not Christians, but they are diametrically opposed to the cross. They do not like the cross at all, and they're against it. And um, it's interesting because in Romans 9.33, Paul says, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Peter says the same thing, it's a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. And that, that this is what Christ is to the world. You can use any other name, and you know this, um, even in curse words, but no one says, oh, Buddha, or oh, Muhammad. But when someone says, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, and you're thinking, so you can respond, oh, you know him too? Well, he's coming back. I mean, you can do. But guys, that name is offensive, and the cross is offensive because Jesus suffered. Why would God allow his son to suffer? And to the world, that's, that, that doesn't make sense. And to us, we're so thankful that the cross was there and that Jesus did suffer. It is a, of an offense. And um, 
so basically, and Paul, I believe he says, I'm weeping for these people. He's not going, yeah, those heathen dogs, they're, you know, they're walking. And, and in fact, 19, he says, whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. Heathen dogs, we need to just pray that they go to hell. No. Paul says, I weep. And, and I think that's important. Jesus said we're to love our enemies, Luke 6, 27, verse, and 35. Um, and we have to remember, guys, that we were once enemies of God. Romans 5.10 tells us this. Colossians 1.21, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind um, by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. We were enemies to Jesus. And the Lord never gave up on us, ever. And Paul says, I weep. And, uh, this is, and he has a strong compassion for those people. Now, I want to give you four reasons why we, according to this text, why we should have compassion on the lost. Now, there's many, many more, but I drew it out of here. I just thought, you know, and the, the four reasons are these people will be destroyed. Second is their God is their appetite. Third, their glory is in their shame. And fourth, is they set their minds on earthly things. And how does that give you compassion? How does that do that? Now, notice this. He says their end is destruction. The Greek word is apaleo, but it means to die, to perish, or it's damnable. Um, it consists of eternal misery in hell. You know, we should weep when I look at the prospect of somebody not coming to Jesus and one day they will be in hell burning forever. That should break your heart. And, you know, this is what he's saying. Their end is destruction. And I weep because of that. I'm not just mad all, you know, mad at these people that are against us, but I weep. Think about that. The prospect of someone going to hell, burning forever, and never, ever getting out. I wish that on nobody. Nobody. You know, we even think of the most heinous of killers, Hitler and Stalin, Dahmer, and... Uh, and even in my heart, although it was heinous what they had done, I, there's no way. It would be nice to see them repent and come to Christ, which we have no indication at all that they did. But just a prospect of somebody that's going to go to hell should break your heart, should move you into a realm where you say, listen, I've got to do something about that. That guy's about ready to walk off a thousand-foot cliff, and I'm just watching him, you know, and he's, you know, do you want to just let him walk off the cliff or run over and grab him up and say, hey, you don't have to walk off that dude. Jesus said this, that to enter the narrow gate. Now, NLT says it like this. The highway, the highway to hell is broad and its gates are wide for many who choose that way. Matthew seven nineteen. And I don't know if this is where... Um, some of the songs Highway to Hell came from, but it's definitely out of that text. But we do know that it's very, very narrow, and we need to broaden it as much as we can as believers. And the only way you can broaden that gate to make it wider so they don't, or close the gate, I should say, is to tell them about Jesus. I hope, I hope we can see that. That should be breaking our heart. Judas was the son of perdition. Same word there is used here, son of destruction. And you don't think that for one moment that Jesus didn't love Judas. We, we knew that Jesus knew that he was the son of perdition, right? We understand that. 
And But did Jesus still have compassion? And did Jesus still reach out even though he knew? Well, all we can say is that where did Judas sit at the table at the Last Supper? On the right hand of Jesus, a place of honor. Did he give, did he give Judas a last chance? You know, I don't know what the thinking was for that. But I will tell you this, that we should never rejoice when someone dies and doesn't accept Jesus, no matter how much we hate him. That should not be even in our hearts. You know, it's an interesting, I looked at Romans 9.22, and just going to bring this up kind of as a side note, but it goes, um, it's talking about God saying, God endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Same word here. Um, Apollo. So, so we know that God has patience with those people that are heading for destruction. The same, same thing we see here. Now, I thought about that. Why would God have to have patience on somebody that he knows already they're going to go to hell? Or is it that, hey, listen, I'm having patience because I'm really tired of them. I can't wait to send them there and burn them up. Now, I know the character of God enough to say that that's not God's heart. He's not patiently waiting to throw them in hell to burn forever. And there'll be some of, the, um, some of our brothers that think in the Reform, and I'm, you know, I'm not against, I'm not Reform, I'm not Baptist, Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist, I don't know what I am. I just believe the Bible. And uh, so, but he, he dealt patiently with the vessels of wrath. And I believe because he loved them. And I believe this is a case in point of free will that God deals, even though he knows, I mean, I don't get it, the foreknowledge, he knows these things, he still loves them and deals with them patiently. Now let's flip the coin on our side. Aren't you glad that he deals with heathens like that? And, uh, and so how does he deal with us, guys? He's very, very patient. He's very, very loving. And he will, oh, and so I, I just think about this whole thing of, of the patience of God. And that these vessels of wrath, he was patient with them because he loved them. And he didn't want them to go to hell. That should never be in our, um, in, in our verbiage. Now, the second thing he says here is that, verse 19, is their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. The Greek word for appetite is interesting. It's um, keola. Um, it's koili a is how you spell it um, or sound it, but it means this: to be given to the pleasures of the palate, gluttony. So you know, if it tastes good, you just eat it and eat it and eat it until you glutton yourself until you sin, and that's a, that's an appetite of food. Um, also, it means the innermost part of a man, the soul and the heart, as the seat of the thought and feelings um, of a choice. It's kind of like cardia. The Greek word for cardia is, is that it's the seabed of all of our emotions. So that's our appetite. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time there on the appetite. Um, because our appetite, we can develop an appetite. We can, um, we can curb an appetite. Um, you know, our appetites, food, drink, romance, the sensual desires, relationships, pa- power, notoriety, fame, drugs, alcohol, sports, gambling. We could almost say that the appetite is the master passion of our life, the driving force in life, the thing you get up for. So let me ask you this. What did you get up for this morning? Just to do your religious duty and come to, you know, I know I need to go to church on Sunday because I'm a believer and maybe, you know. 
Or do you come because there's an appetite for the Word of God? And again, not always are you going to walk in those doors and say, praise God, I made it because there was everything working against you to get here. But when you get here, that was the sermon that God wanted you to hear, wasn't it? The times I led worship as a worship leader, and I just, I, I didn't even feel like I wanted to. And I'd just get up there and I'd praise God, and God start peeling back everything. And he, he, my appetite, because I wasn't hungry for worship or the Word of God, but I force-fed myself. People that are starving, they'll tell you they don't want to eat. They have no appetite, but they've got to force themselves to eat. So sometimes we do that. By faith, we just got to force ourselves to do the things we know are right. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. The most pleasing thing to Him is you, you come to church or you do your devotions even when you don't feel it. And He's going, oh man, that's my son there. That's my daughter. Man, they're just coming. I know they don't feel it, but I know they love me and they're doing it by faith. And that's so pleasing to me. And don't you want to be pleasing to Jesus? I mean, I want to be pleasing to Him. You can develop a taste for all kinds of stuff. Um, when I first started drinking coffee, uh, you know, now I'm a coffee snob. And uh, we have a coffee shop. When I was a kid, I didn't like spinach. But I got older and I developed a, you know, I could eat spinach. Now, one thing I can't develop a, uh, for is like kimchi. Um, if you know what kimchi is, it's like rotten cabbage. And it ferments. It's something my wife loves it. I'm thinking, boy, you're sick. <laughs> no. <laughs> rotten cabbage, it ferments and it stinks. And she goes, oh, it's so good. I'm going, ha. Ah. Or if you want to go to the Philippines with Willie Bob and eat baloo, no. you get a big duck egg and they bury it and they let it rot and ferment and whatever. And I, they, I think they boil it. But anyway, we opened that dude up and there was a little beak. There's a beak and there's feathers. And, and they eat them. Now, I could not get an appetite for that. But I did try. Willie, I did, didn't I? I mean, honest, Joe and I, we sucked the juice out of it and ate the yolk. But after that, I just couldn't do it. That's, yeah, well, I don't know how I got there, so. But we can develop an appetite for spiritual matters. So like this, guys, you may say, I don't have a hunger for the word. I don't get it. I can't read it. I know it's, it's not gelling with me. But when you read and you read, and I've shared this, and I, I, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm so grateful. When I first got saved, I was so burnt out on drugs. And I never read a book in my life. And, um, and uh, so I started reading my Bible. I'm thinking, this is a hopeless case because I couldn't get anything. And I would read. I remember reading in the Psalms and Corinthians, and it would take me an hour to read one chapter or two hours, but I kept reading, and then I started memorizing verses, and next thing you know, I got this appetite. It's like, whoa, man, I couldn't get enough, and God healed my brain, and now I can read books, and I can preach. That's up to you guys. What do you think that's true? But I can share the Word of God, and I'm healed because God gave me this insatiable desire to read His Word and to teach it. Like I read it and go, oh, I got to tell somebody about this one. And that's how you know you're called. You just got to tell somebody. But we can do that with the word, with praise, with fellowship, with evangelism. You know, th- those are things that, that we need an appetite for. You know, again, there's, there's food, sports, hunting, mo- motorcycles, music. And these in and of themselves are not evil. But when they become the desire of your life that you're spending more time thinking about that, it becomes an idol, then you're in pride. So you can have an appetite for bad things, or you can have an appetite for good things, and if it's out of control, you've got you to check it. So our basic appetites really, or at least a lot of them, are God-given. 
It is when they consume you and govern your thinking. And when they become the, uh, the most dominating thought in your life, guys, and occupies, you, occupy, occupies your thinking, it, it'll just, that, that's when your problem has come. Watching the NFL. This is a big time of the year. Everybody's watching the NFL, right? And the appetite for the NFL. And then they have the uh, uh, fantasy football, okay? And all that. I don't play it, and I don't, I, 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 you know, I don't do any of that. I don't hardly watch it. I like football. But um, I know guys that play fantasy football, and they eat, sleep, drink. They gamble it away. And next thing you know, really, it is they have such an appetite that when the season's over, they get depressed, Oh my goodness, the NFL season's over and they don't know what to do with themselves because they, they birthed themselves into having this insatiable desire. And again, I like football as well as the next guy. Um, but when you're spending your time and your money supporting that, so, you know, those of you who are hunters, hunting enthusiasts, um, opening day of deer season is great. You know, I love it. Um, I'm going to go down south of bob and we're going to hunt a little bit this week so i'm grateful for that uh but when it takes your allotted vacation for your family and thousands of dollars to buy the new hoyt bow you know it's a little out of it's a little out of kilter here you can be a gun enthusiast as a believer and you can gain such an appetite for gaining and, and getting guns and ballistics that i know guys that it just became their lifestyle bullets and guns go figure i'm eschatology, you can really have an appetite for end times teaching and go for it, but then all of a sudden you start reading conspiracy theories, and there's plenty of them out there, and so you're hearing all kinds of weird stuff, like they're throwing poison up in jet streams, and they got GPL stuff all over, and we're, we're being, and I think some of that could be very, very true, guys, we're in some really rough times, and the world's weird, but you can get such an appetite for that, next thing you know, you're just chasing conspiracy theories. You don't even want to sit down on the bus because you think there's maybe a bug there. I don't know. It just gets crazy. Video games are out of control. The appetite of the world with video games is really pretty crazy right now. The social media, the phone. I mean, people freak out if they leave their phone at home. Oh, my gosh, my phone's at home. And they're going back. I mean, you've got to get your phone. You got to get you. You can't go anywhere without your phone. Oh, it's running out of juice. Oh my gosh, am I kidding? It's like, no. I leave mine at home sometimes just intentionally because I'm tired of it, and I'm not a big. So if you if you do, and I don't mean to be offensive with this, but I don't do Facebook or hardly any email. Only if I have to, and you get on texting, and I, I don't even know what Instagram is, and tweetering or twiddling. Uh, I just do the bare essentials to keep alive in the ministry. So if you don't get a lot back from me, it's not because I don't love you. It's just I don't know how to do it. So, but the non-believer can get caught up in it, but the believer needs to watch the appetites. Like fitness, I mean, that's a big one. You get obsessed with the gym and it becomes your God. You know, back in the day in the world, uh, in the Roman Empire, um, there was the goddess of food. Her name is Edesiae, and uh, so you would invite her to your Roman feast, and you would just glutton yourself. Now, I thought there was a thing called a vomit, vomitarian, or so people get you know so full that they have a place where they vomit, and that's kind of a myth. I don't, you know, and that may have happened, but what they did do is they worshipped food so much that they ate as much as they could and just glutton themselves, and you would ask the goddess 
of food to come down and bless your time. And they worship food. The, the goddess of drink, um, Bibiasi, um, she was one. And, and so there were gluttony orgies and commonplace in the Roman Empire, exotic foods, and they, it became a god. Uh, it, they would serve stuff like um, hummingbird tongue, mm, pike liver, brains of a pheasant, Flamingo tongue. Now, how many hummingbird tongues is it going to take to fill you up? I guess they're low carb, so we're okay. But today's society, the appetite for for adrenaline and the appetite for and we were I'm on the drug opiate task force for um, drugs and opiate and heroin is off the charts right now. It's an appetite that you've never seen before. And if you've dealt with any of these people, they will go in, in, to no ends. And I, I feel, you know, my heart goes out to them because I don't believe anybody's an addict. I believe they're just addicted. I don't believe anybody is in recovery. I believe that they're recovered. I, I believe that we're Second Corinthians 5.17. We're a new creation. We don't have to come back and say, Hi, I'm Tom Camp and I'm an alcoholic. No, I'm Tom Camp and I'm a Second Corinthians 5.17 man. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things became new. That's me. Amen. 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 And so that's, that's good to say amen to that. You guys are getting it a little bit. Overeating is a problem. And I don't want to hound this very long, but just the appetites really kind of struck me. Proverbs 13, 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in want. It's like, feed me, feed me, feed me. Oh, you know, McDonald's, Twinkies, and none of that stuff's good for you. A guy by the name of Robert Alden wrote this. What you do at a banquet or an elegant dinner tells others what kind of person you are. The ruler who hosts a dinner has a sharp eye on his guests. Some are at all, while others overeat, thereby revealing their greed and overindulgence. Wise men, however, will eat in moderation and restraint, constantly aware of what the host is asking them. And it's kind of true. As I mean, you know, I'm not saying everybody that glutton is just like this massive sinner, uh, but it's, a, it's an appetite like everything that needs to be in check. And I think there's a lot to be said about I mean, how many restaurants do we have on 26? I, mean, I think we had the most in America at one time. It was on Jeopardy. Yeah, we, we trumped them all. So how often can you go out and eat? But, you know, I think food can be an idol. I mean, I like some of the cooking shows, but some of them are like, the, the way they do the food, I'm thinking, are you worshiping that little cake? You know? <laughs> well, have you ever been around people when you're eating pizza? And you look at that last piece there. And nobody's wanting to take it. Oh, you can have it. No, no, you can have it. No, no, you can have it. Everybody's trying to be really like in moderation. Like I'm being really kind of, you know, then when everybody goes, I just take it. (laughs) When it comes to sushi, my family can put it down and nobody's saving any sushi. We go out to eat and I'm telling you, it's, it's a sushi feast and nobody stops. But Proverbs 25, 16 says, have you found honey? Eat what you need that you not have it in excess and vomit it. I'm just using all that to say that the appetite, uh, we need to feel sorry for people that their appetites are out of control. And not to go, you, man, you, why? 
You're addicted to what? You're addicted to pornography? Paul weeps. And it's hard sometimes to weep for someone that may have molested a child. It's hard. But those people need Jesus too. Make no provision and make no mistake about it. It's a heinous sin. But Jesus loves those people. Then he says for the third one that their um, their glory is their shame. You've heard of the shock jocks, right? Back in the day when they come out on the radio and they would say all kinds of bizarre, gnarly things that were rude and crude. And they were really, they were taking pride in that. They took pride. The comedians of the day, how gross can they get on and off stage? They're, what we have is a society that's taking pride in, in being um, gross and offensive. And this is what their glory is, their shame. Gross entertainment, pornography, um, it, you know, the pride and the shame that comes along with that. And the, the, it just, it's so sad. I remember back in the day where it was popular that if you were at a party, you would roll the biggest joint and, you know, smoke it on, wipe yourself out. You were popular. Yeah, that guy can really do it. And it's like you're glorying in your shame, you know. It's like it was a shameful thing to do, but yet it was, uh, the accolades came from all your, your cronies. It was sad. Some people drink, take pride in how much they can drink, how much they can eat, how bad they can beat others up. Paul says, I feel sorry for him, and I weep for them. And then the last one he says is that they set their minds on earthly things. And this is Paul explicitly saying in Colossians, we see that we're set our mind on the heavenly things. And I can sum it up like this. When all you think about are things that have nothing to do with heaven or Jesus, and it's all on this earth, you're thinking on earthly things. I don't want to be oversimple here, but when you continually dwell on that, this is what Paul says, man, that's all they got. And this is what I look at people and say, that's, I feel so bad for them because that's all they got. And Lord, would you help me to tell them that they don't have to give in to their appetites and they don't have to think about earthly things. Paul says he weeps over them. I weep, I, and I, I've got to be careful with my wife, but I, I, you know, guys know I, I, love, I appreciate my wife and I love her and, and I watch her sometimes, and she'll be praying in the morning, and I hope she doesn't lose her reward. She weeps over people. I watch her, and she's crying. I'm going, what are you doing? I'm praying for so-and-so, and she's just weeping and crying. And my heart is so stirred by that. Again, that probably, she'll probably kill me for saying that, but I said other things, so she's, don't say that to those people. But Mother Teresa, I, we, I love her. But I do weep, and I want to be weeping over people. That's the motivation to see people come to Christ. Then I'm going to kind of sum it up here. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. The word there in the um, King James is conversion. I mean, sorry, yeah, conversation, I'm sorry. For which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he um, has even to subject uh, subject all things to himself. Okay, the word here, the optimal word here is that he says, um, also from which we are eagerly waiting for a Savior. Are you eagerly waiting for a Savior this morning? Are you waiting, are you ready for Jesus Christ in the event of the rapture if you would die? Are you eagerly waiting that? Or are you saying, well, I'm just kind of biding my time. It would be nice if the Lord comes back. I mean, some of us eagerly wait because we... 
our bodies hurt and we've had many trials. So get me out, beat me up, Scotty. But, but I eagerly wait for the coming of Jesus. I, I, w- I was early on in my walk with the Lord. I was taught about the rapture. I was taught about the end times. And when I started reading about heaven, Revelation 21, streets of gold and no more dying and no more pain, no more flesh-eating diseases. My goodness, guys. So I, I, I'm not just going, yeah, it's going to be nice when I go to heaven. It's all going to happen. No, I wait eagerly. I'm saying, Lord, take me. i got my sunroof open. So when it happens, I'm shooting out. not going to have any impedance at all. I'm, I'm gone. And so, I, and this is the one thing about the healthy church is that it eagerly waits for Jesus. They're excited about his coming. And are you excited about him coming, guys? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to finish the book of Philippians. And I'm going to go right to the book of Thessalonians. I love the book of Philippians, and, um, but I can't wait to get into Thessalonians because we're going to build around Thessalonians, Revelation and Daniel, and we're going to do an eschatology study like you've never seen before. And the only reason I say that, not because of my great teaching skills, oh, that's part of it, but, but, um, but guys, it, the thing that excites the church the most and makes them most evangelical and makes them purist is they anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ at any moment. And so we've taught through it in Revelation and we got all excited. And it's almost like we got to get this, this fix of, of end time so you know where you're at. Guys, Jesus is coming back. And nothing has changed from the, probably three years ago when I taught Revelation. I'm still excited. But we're going to bump it up. And we're going to, I'm going to try to do my best to get you guys to understand how close we are to the coming of Jesus. Everything that's happening and how excited I am. And the world is, is really jacked up. And, and it's, it's, all, it's all messed up and all kinds of crazy. And, and we're not going to talk politics. But we're all going to talk about Jesus. And I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for the Christ. And that's what we need to find. So, guys, I'm so excited because when I think about the study of eschatology and end times, that, that um, when the Jesus movement happened and all these hippies were getting saved underneath the, the ministry of Chuck Smith, and I'm not looking back to the good old days. It was just another revival that was depicted by the Word of God and the Spirit of God moving. And about every 40 to 50 years, there has been a major revival in our world. And we're right, we're right there. We're, you know, we're so ripe for revival. Sometimes I look at the church, I'm going, they need it. And I say, I need it. Sometimes I look at you guys on Sunday morning and say, they need it. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, or am I? No, we need that. We need to know that Jesus is coming back. And that there's all these events that are happening, and in I want you to be eagerly waiting. I mean, if I if it were up to me, you know, I, you know, I would teach eschatology every Sunday. But guys, we need to wait. We need to know when Jesus is coming—not the day or the hour, but the season that we're in. We're there. So I hope you're excited with me, and I want to eagerly see, and guess what's going to happen? Our body's going to be transformed, and you, you know what? There will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more depression, no more sore backs, no more cancer, none of that. I will see my, my daughter-in-law, I will see my mom and dad who died of diseases, and I will see them disease-free. We'll see Mike's mom no, Mike Hale's mom no longer with a flesh-eating disease. She's free. She's free. And though, why not get excited about that? Jeez. I mean, that's the greatest news I've ever heard. 
that Jesus is coming and he saved my sorry soul. Amen. If Trent comes up, you know, and he wants to share a song with us, I would like for you guys to stand. And um, again, if you don't know Jesus and you're here and you, uh, or you've never made a commitment. Now, here's the thing. Yep, it's every Sunday we do this. Absolutely, we'll give you the opportunity. But I have to share with you that we'll never miss an opportunity here to share Jesus and for you to come forward. Don't leave this room unless you know Jesus personally. Unless you've asked him into your heart and you've asked for forgiveness of your sins. So as we sing this song, please make your way forward up here to either side, either Mike or Ryan. And... um, and uh, we'll pray with you so that you can have a personal relationship with Christ. If you just need prayer and you're a believer, that's fine. Y'all can come up for that too. But the first and foremost...